chapter of the tongue because uh, that's the main emphasis that's given there in chapter 3 uh, and James talking about uh, how the tongue is, can be and is used for evil it's used for wickedness uh, and of course at the end of that chapter he uh, gives us some examples of, uh, of earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom wisdom that comes from above and uh, you know, if we're using that wisdom that, uh, that we should be asking God for according to James chapter 1 uh, we'll be using our tongue in the correct manner and that's pretty much uh, the, how chapter 3 end, uh, ends and we go on into chapter 4 and James begins chapter 4 and this is a, uh, this is a rough chapter it's rough for, it's rough for Christians that's something we've got to remember that James is writing uh, to, to believers in Christ. And I know I've said that over and over through this study. Uh, and if no other chapter, if no other verses really in this book emphasize that more, it's James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. You find 14 references in those four verses. You find 14 references to ye or you or your. And who is the ye, you, or your that he's referring to? He's refer, it's referring to the brethren that, he, uh, that he's talking to in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3. It's the same people he's referring to. So it's believers in Christ. It's the church that he's writing to. And, and that's, that's hard, hard to, for us to accept. It's hard for us to swallow. Because this chapter talks about enemies of God. And it talks about... Uh, well, the very beginning of this chapter, uh, the very first verse, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? There shouldn't be any wars and fightings among the Christians. There shouldn't be any wars and fightings among the body of Christ, but there are. Uh, but remember, uh, we, we've got to remember that he is writing to believers. We can't read this chapter and point our finger at the world because James was pointing his finger at the church when he was writing this. He was pointing his finger directly at uh, fellow believers in Christ. So we'll pick up in James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? So he asked two questions here. Where do these, where do these wars and where do these fightings come from? And then he asked another question. Uh, come they not hence, even of your lusts? that war in your members. They come from your own desires. We can go all the way back to James chapter 1 again, where he talks about uh, uh, that uh, you know, sin, it begins in our hearts, it begins in us. It begins of our own lusts and our own desires. We can't blame the devil for, for you know, our own desires. We can't blame him for our own sin. We can't point our finger at the devil or at demons or anything else and say the devil made me do it. 
when it begins with us. It begins inside of us. And he, but he asked the question, where do these wars and where do these fightings come from? Where do these disputes come from? And there's two different Greek words that are used here. The one for words is, uh, for wars is a word called polemos. And that's talking about an ongoing campaign, an ongoing uh, fight. That's, you know, like we would talk about World War II going on for a few years or even World War I. Uh, we're talking about something that lasts a long time. The second word that he uses is fightings. And that's, that's a Greek word called mache. And that word is the one that talks about the individual battles within the war. You know, we, we might fight for five years, but we might fight a hundred different battles in that five years, but it's all considered the same war. And he's saying, why, why are these long-going disputes happening among you? And why are these tiny little battles, why are these uh, little nitpicky things going on? But he answers them with another question. He says, do they not come? He says, come they not hence, which is the same as saying, do they not come, even of your lust that war in your members. They come from you as individuals, James is saying. They come from your lust within your own hearts, your own individual hearts, that war in your own uh, individual members. saying it's because of your desires. And you can actually go back to James chapter 3, where he gives the warning about being, uh, being not many masters, knowing this, that we shall receive the greater condemnation. He, and he's giving warning there. And this was one of the disputes that was going on. I want to teach. No, I want to teach. Well, I know more than you do. No, I know more than you do. I know this one, and I know that one. I sat under this one, and I sat under this one. And these were just the little fights that were turning into huge ongoing wars between church members. And it shouldn't be that way. Right. It shouldn't be that way in any, any individual church as far as a building is concerned. And it shouldn't be that way in the body of Christ worldwide. There should be no disputes among us. But there are. There are. And, and unfortunately, I think that there always will be. And why is it, though? James answers that. James answers that. It's because of our own lusts. It's because of our own desires. It's because of things that begin in our own individual hearts. Verse 2, he says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Uh, back to verse 2, ye lust and have not. In other words, you desire and you have not. It doesn't matter how much we desire these things. Uh, James is saying here, remember he said these, these wars and these fightings are coming of our own desires and our own lust for, uh, for things that are going to gratify us. You know, and, and unfortunately that's an attitude that a, a lot of church people and a lot of believers, a lot of believers, like I won't even say church people because that includes lost people that enters the doors of the church house. But this is the attitude of a lot of believers in Christ. And it shouldn't be our attitude, but it is. Uh, that because of our lust, and we want to be gratified on, in our means and in our time and our way, we'll go to whatever lengths we have to. We'll step on anybody's head that we have to. We'll hurt anybody's feelings that we have to. We'll do whatever we have to gratify our own lust and our own desire. He says, you lust 
and have not. Even though you desire these things, you still don't have them. You're continuing on in this war that I'm talking about, and you're creating even more battles uh, within the war that I'm talking about. And he, and he goes on, you kill and desire to have. Now, maybe he wasn't talking about physical murder. Maybe he wasn't talking about one person in the congregation uh, strangling another one because there was a disagreement between the two of them. But folks, we know from Scripture that the tongue uh, can cause us to murder. The tongue can cause us uh, to, to, to kill someone, not, not physically, but to kill someone that can, it can kill their, uh, their reputation. It can kill their own desires for God. I mean, our, our tongue is a, is a brutal weapon. We know that from chapter 3 of the book of James. You know, John says in 1 John, he says, if, if you hate your brother, you have not the love of the Lord. I mean, that's, that's some brutal words in and of itself. And James didn't even speak those. That was John, the, the apostle of love, that wrote the gospel of love. And he says that if, if we have hate in our heart, the love of God uh, can't be within us. We can't hate our brother and claim love for God. It's an impossibility according to Scripture. But it says you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Why can't? Why wouldn't we be able to obtain it? Because well, he goes on into that. Let's keep on reading. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. All this ties together. Verses 2 uh, through verses 3, three through the end of verse 3. They all tie, uh, tie together there. He says, you, you, des you desire to, or you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have, and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not. All these things are going on. All these fightings, all these disputings, all this tongue lashing, all this backbiting is going on in the church. Insults are flying back and forth, and yet you still don't have what you're desiring. That's what James is saying. It's doing you no good. It's doing us no good. And it's certainly not edifying the body of Christ when things like this go on. And James is, uh, James is warning the believers here of these things. He says, yet you have not because you ask not. Because you ask not for what? You're asking not, you're not asking the right one, the right person uh, for these things. Who is the right person? That would be God. You, you ask God for these things and not, uh, uh, well, he goes on into verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You, uh, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. What? What might be asked amiss of a believer in Christ? What might be asked, I mean, anything. So people, people praying at 13 win the Super Bowl. That's, that's, just, that's just an off-the-handle example. Or the World Series, or the Stanley Cup, or their NASCAR driver to win the race. Why, are you, why would you ask God for something like that? That they hit the lottery. Why would you ask God for something like that? That you can glory in that. That you can glory that so-and-so won the race. That you can glory that such-and-such team won such-and-such game. That you can rub it in your co-workers' faces. You can rub it in your family members' faces. You can rub it in other church members' faces that they've done that. That's, and that, that's a dramatic example, but it's an example nonetheless. That you ask and receive not because you ask and miss that you may consume it upon uh, your own lust. But what... Uh, the verse before that, I'm sorry, verse 2, says, uh, 
You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. It's something I'd like to address that I feel like the church has been wrong about for a long time. Y'all can agree to disagree, or you can just outright disagree with me, and that's fine. But people have the attitude, and it's the church's fault that they have this attitude, that when they ask for something, and I'm, now I'm talking about legitimate things, I'm asking, or I'm talking about healing for a family member or for self, or for, uh, you know, maybe guidance or something along those lines, something, something that's actually going to help them out. And they don't feel like God's answering that prayer. They don't feel like they've, uh, God has helped them in these things. You know, mama's still laying in the hospital bed dying, or daddy did die, or whatever the case is. You know, and, but the Bible says you have not because you ask not, and that's what people will say. And people develop a bitter or a negative attitude toward God, toward God because they've been told all their life that no is an answer just like yes is. Now, folks, if you really look at Scripture, that's really not the case. Paul asked thrice. Three times to God he asked that God remove the thorn in his flesh. And God did give him an answer, yes. But I don't feel like Paul felt like he got the answer that he was wanting. He wanted that thorn removed, did he not? Therefore, is no an answer? Of course no is an answer. You ask me something and I give you a negative answer, I give you a negative response. No, it's still an answer, yes. But how do we phrase it? I've been praying for years that God will do this for me and God will do that for me. God ain't answered that prayer. That's exactly what we say. That's what you say, and that's what I say. God still hasn't answered that prayer. Well, if you truly believe that no is an answer, why would you say God ain't answered that prayer? Our answers and our mindset as human beings are always affirmative to what we desire, and what our lusts are. And too, too often we, we uh, match that word lust with a sexual desire, and that's not what it always means. That is anything that, any type of desire that you have in your heart, that's what you're lusting after. You look at Judas Iscariot in the scripture. The man had a bad problem lusting after money. And he never got rid of that problem. As far as I can tell in the scripture, that, that never did leave him. That lust, that desire never left him. His lust for money never left him. Pride gets in the way too, and we'll get into that here in the next few verses, next couple of verses. But when our lusts and our desires uh, become the focus of us, what are we going to ask? We're going to ask for things that we ask amiss, that we can uh, that we can consume those things upon our own lusts, our own desires. We can consume them, and and when we consume those, the example I was using. We're rubbing in people's faces. These are things that, that really don't matter as far as the kingdom of God goes, as far as the furtherance of the kingdom of God goes, or the, the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes. We ask these things uh, uh, that we may consume them upon our own lusts. But all people want to read there is, you ask and receive not. And people will take that and they'll say, it's because you're not asking in faith. That's not what James says. James 
don't even mention faith here. James says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. They're one of the hardest verses in all this scripture and all this passage of scripture to swallow. Why? Because he's referring to the church. He's referring to believers. He's referring to those that have claimed the name of Jesus Christ. Those that have professed faith in Christ. That's whom he is writing to. He said, and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And he's not talking about in the physical sense here. I've heard this preached. I've heard a sermon preached using this verse. And people talking about physical adultery. And I guess you could do that, yes, but that's not what James is talking about. Therefore, technically, it's being taken out of context if that's done. He's talking about spiritual adultery here. He's talking, and folks, that's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament that, that God, God, God refers to, in the book of Ezekiel, God refers to Israel as an imperious, harsh woman. That's harsh words. But it was toward his own people. It was toward the apple of his eye. It was toward those that he had chosen, that he had redeemed, that he had brought up out of the bondage of Egypt. He said that about them. Why would he say that? Read the book of Hosea sometime. It gives you all kinds of examples of the exact same thing. It's spiritual adultery that James is talking about here. He's not just referring to the, to the physical adulterers and adulteresses of the day. He is talking about uh, the church being spiritual adulterers to God. Why are we called the bride of Christ? That means we've been set apart for Christ. That means that, that we are to be married to Christ. But when we get away from Christ and we go out with the world, that's why he gets into the whole friendship with the world is enmity with God here. We go out and we flirt with the world. We go out and we hold hands with the world. We go out and we smooch up on the world. We do all these things. Why would we do that? Well, a lot of people do it saying that they're doing that to further the gospel. They say, I'm going to go out to the bars and I'm going to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You hang out at the bars long enough, you'll be just as drunk as the people you're there with, if not more so. Say, I'm going to go down here at the street corner at 2 a.m. and be a witness for Christ to the prostitutes. You hang out long enough on those street corners, you're going to wind up in bed with one of those prostitutes. The world will rub off on us. The world will influence us. People say, I'm going to go to this party. I'm going to go to this concert, some ungodly band or some ungodly artist. And I'm going to go be a witness for Christ. You stay outside the doors and you be a witness for Christ. You go inside there, you're going to end up just like the world that's in there. And the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And again, he is writing to believers. He's writing to believers, talking about believers in Christ being friends with the world. I'm not saying if you got a job or you got family members that are that are lost that that you can't have any contact with them. I'm not saying that at all. How else are we going to get the gospel to them if we're not having contact with them? But you don't hang out the places they go to. You don't do the things that they do. Why is that? Because we're to be a peculiar people. 
And we don't make ourselves peculiar. God makes us peculiar. The Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us, it will lead us in our lives. It will lead us in our speech. And that's what makes us peculiar because we're not like everybody else that's around us. Amen. We are to be a city that's set up on a hill. And we, and we can't be hid if that's the case. We're not to take our candle and put it under a bushel, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to set it out in the house and let that light shine. It's not to partake in the evil deeds of this world. It's not to do the same actions or say the same things as the wickedness in this world does. I said, folks, the world will rub off on you. It will rub off on you. Even somebody that's born again, cleansed, keeps their nose in the Bible every day, pray, and they stay prayed up. They got an awesome prayer life with God. All of these things, you hang out with the world long enough, and that stuff will start to fall to the side. That's why church attendance is so important. That's why fellowship with, with other believers is so important, because if you're not getting it with them, you're going to get it from somewhere else. If you're not having fellowship with people of a like faith, you're going to have fellowship with somebody that doesn't have a like faith as you. And before you know it, you're going to hook up with one of these people as a friend, as a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case is, maybe even a spouse. You're going to, you're going to hook up with them, be hanging out with them long enough, and you're going to be, be believing in a Jesus Christ that is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. You're going to be believing in this Jesus that so many people in the world believe in that, that will save their souls and let them live however they want to with no consequence. And that's a false god. That's a false Jesus, and that's idolatry. And that's, well, that's a whole other thing. But friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Whosoever, believers and non-believers alike, whosoever, hey, if whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, if that whosoever means whosoever, this whosoever means whosoever. Whosoever will be a friend of the, therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God, the saved and lost alike. Whether we like it or not, folks, that's the scripture. Whether we agree with it or not, that's the scripture. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy, that he giveth more grace? Praise God. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. In verse 5, do you think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? I searched and searched and searched years ago for this verse in scripture. Not verse 5 of chapter 4 of James, but where it says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain that the scripture or that the spirit that dwelt in us lusteth the envy? And I can't find it. And that confused me. As, as a newly born again Christian, that confused me. I was like, Well, why would he be saying that this is in here if it's not? The teaching of it is in here, the teaching of it's in several different places. But the scripture, I mean, this very quote, I can't find in scripture. What is he saying? What is James saying? Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? <coughs> the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. But he giveth grace, wherefore he said, saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Well, this spirit that's brought up here, I don't see a capital S in the front of it. And that immediately tells me we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. So what spirit are we talking about then? That's got to be the spirit of man. That's got to be our desire. That's our, our lust. And it says uh, the, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. It's jealous. It's jealous. Now, all this being said, like I said, this spirit is not capitalized, not in my Bible. So I don't think that's, or I don't think James is talking about the Holy Spirit here. But that being said, on the flip side of that coin, the Holy Spirit is jealous. Our spirit's jealous. Why? Why else? Why else would our spirit, uh, your spirit and mine both, why else would would Paul go on? Uh, basically a chapter-long rant in Romans chapter 7 about the war that happens between the flesh and the spirit. The war that happens between our flesh, our spirit, our desires, and our lusts, and the Holy Spirit of God. This is the same chapter where Paul says, that which I would do, I do not, and that which I would not, that I do. He's saying, what I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do that. And what I know, know I'm not supposed to do, that's what I do. Why is that? It's because that's the spirit in us. Our spirit is jealous, but the Holy Spirit of God is also jealous. God himself is jealous. Read Exodus chapter 34, if you don't believe me. It's got a capital J in jealous. One of the names of God in scripture is jealous. And he is jealous. And he tells Israel that he's jealous. Why is he jealous of them, though? The same way I would be if my wife was flirting with some fella out on the street. Or same way she would be if I was flirting with some woman on the street. It's, it's, it's not a, a, a hateful type of jealousy, but it's a your mind jealousy. Why are you doing this? And sometimes that jealousy may be directed at the spouse or at the child or whoever it is, as the sister or the brother. I mean, my goodness, if y'all grew up with siblings, you got jealous over your siblings. I don't care if you're the older sibling or the younger sibling. You got jealous over something at some point. Maybe they received an award or maybe they received an honor. Maybe they got recognition for something and you got jealous over that. I was a baby brother of four boys. I know exactly how that feels. But we get jealous over things. Our spirit gets jealous, but the Holy Spirit of God is jealous too. Why? Because God has saved our souls. God has delivered us out of the bondage of sin, out of the bondage of Satan himself. And he's delivered us from, the wrath, from his own wrath that he has promised to everyone that doesn't believe in him. And then we go and we be a friend of the world. That's why God is jealous. God says, you're mine. Why are you doing this? And people talk about how the scripture teaches that jealousy is a sin, and jealousy is crueler than the grave, as Solomon wrote. I mean, it says, and it does. It says all. It, it says and teaches all of these things. And then they say, "Well, is God being sinful when he's jealous? When he's jealous? No, no. He's doing just like you and and I would do. He's saying you're mine. You don't act this way. His jealousy is not sinful. God has never committed sin." Jesus Christ never committed sin. No guile was ever found in his mouth. This jealousy is not sinful. But he says, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Our spirit uh, uh, lusteth to envy. But he giveth more grace. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He resists the proud. 
God will always resist the proud. Proverbs chapter 6, one of the very things that God hates, according to the scripture, is a proud look. Again in Proverbs, it says that pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. If you're going to walk around in your own pride, you're going to walk around with a proud look, destruction's coming. There's going to be turmoil, there's going to be uh, just bad stuff altogether coming your way if you walk around with a proud look. But it gives grace to the humble. It gives grace to those that walk around in humility. It gives grace to those. Folks, if the Bible says, and it does here, if it says God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble, it means exactly what it says. If somebody is walking around in the Holy Spirit, they're not going to get much grace from God. This is what I'm reading in the scripture. When I come to God, when God saved my soul, I didn't come to him in pride. I come to him because he humbled me down. And God done that with every one of us. God shows you how you've offended him. God shows you what sins you've committed against him, what, uh, what transgressions you've made, and what trespasses you've made against his moral law. God shows you that he is perfect and you certainly are not. And he showed me the same thing. And that's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing. And this is one of the one of the reasons it's so hard to talk to people nowadays. And once again, I, I blame the church for a lot of uh, for a lot of it's hard to talk to people about the gospel because a lot of the church has convinced people that they're all right when they're not. They said, you just do this, you throw money in the plate, you show up once or twice or maybe three times a year for service and tell your mama you love her before you leave her and, and all these other things they say you'll be alright with God you, you, you do this you do these things and people get it in their head I'm alright because I have done these things folks my salvation has nothing to do with what I've done or anything that I can do it has to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ on a cross that's where my salvation come from. And I can have no pride of my own in that. I can hold I can have no credit to that. Jesus Christ done that on his own for me and for everyone that has ever believed. Therefore, I must be humble. And God humbled me down when he saved me, and God humbled you down when, when, when he saved you. And he gives grace to the humble. But God, it takes God to humble us down. We can't, we can't humble ourselves to the point to be saved. God must do it. Because, well, why is that? Because the spirit that dwells in us lusts at the enemy. But our spirit's jealous. God has to be the one to do this. Submit, uh, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My goodness, that sounds pretty easy. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I've heard this verse quoted and quoted and quoted. You probably have too. But we have a problem doing it. You remember. You remember this, though, and I've brought it up at least a half a dozen times this morning. He's writing to believers. I can't tell you how many people I've heard preach and I've heard teach that God won't save you unless you completely submit yourself to him. And I dare say this morning, right here within these walls, there are very few, if any of us, that are absolutely 100%, totally, 
committed and submitted to God. We've held something back. We've held something back from him. James is writing to believers, and he's telling them, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I believe these things. I believe that if I resist the devil, he will flee. But folks, that don't mean he's going to stay, stay out yonder somewhere. If you believe that the three temptations we read Jesus Christ uh, suffered through uh, in the Gospels, that's the only three times he was tempted, you're horribly mistaken. The man was tempted from the time he was born to the time he ascended. He was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by demons. He was tempted by all kinds of things. But he overcame that temptation. If we resist the devil, the devil will flee, but the devil will be back. The demons will be back. And they'll be back with the desires that they know that we have. They'll be back with the lust that they know that we have. They'll be tempting us with what they know appeals to us. But we need to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Folks, this is brought up over and over in Scripture. This is the same same thing, and a lot of you probably know by heart, Romans chapter 12, again, verse 1. And, and you keep in mind, you keep in mind, Paul was writing to the church then, too. And he wasn't writing to uh, mainly Jews when he wrote it, either. He was writing to the Roman church, mainly a bunch of Gentiles. But what does he say? My brethren... I beseech you to give yourselves over as a living sacrifice. What is that? That's submitting yourself to God. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And again, he's writing to believers when he said that Paul was. James is writing to believers here. But Paul and James both understood that, that the Christian church, the believers in Christ, were not fully submitted. But they were encouraging them to do so. Listen, I can't find one example. I'm going to go ahead and close this before I read another verse. I can't find one example in Scripture. Not one from the time that Paul got saved on the road to Damascus to the time that Paul told Timothy he was ready to be uh, given up. He was ready to die. I can't find one example in Scripture of Paul not being submitted to God not being fully submitted to God. I can't find one example of that in the scripture. If there was ever a man outside of Jesus Christ that was submitted to God, it was Paul. But I can't find an example in scripture otherwise. But Paul and James both realized that this was an issue in the church. And folks, it's an issue nowadays. We're not. We're not. We're not completely submitted to Yet we believe, and yet we're saved. Remember, they were writing to believers, but we're not fully submitted. What are you keeping? What are you holding back? What are you holding back? People say all say all the time. I hear Christians over and over and over say, you know, my my spiritual life's suffering. Why is that? Why does my spiritual life suffer? Because I'm holding back. Because I'm not fully submitted. I'm not fully committed. Does that mean I'm not saved? according to what I read in Scripture. But my spiritual life could be so much more filled, so much more fulfilled, if I would do that very thing, submit myself, therefore, to God. Resisting the devil, that's, you know, we like to pay attention to that, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But we kind of forget about that first part of that verse, submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. 
like, resist the devil and he'll flee. What good does it do to resist the devil if we're not fully submitted to God? 